checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast about people with people. As usual, I'm your host, Mitch Gaines. You can find me at Mitch Gaines just about anywhere on the internet that I want to be found. This is your first time checking out the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're so happy to have you here. Those People is a show, as I mentioned, with people, about people, where we explore all the labels that others give us and the ones that we give ourselves. So every episode, we sit down with a different guest and we interview them about their stories, their successes, their struggles, all the important S words, really. But most importantly, we kick it with them about the people who are involved so if you love it we love you to go and go tell a friend if you hate it we hate you and please kindly shut the fuck up forever i am just kidding about that last part but if you hate the show for real please shoot me a note at mitchgains at gmail.com and you can tell me what you hated and maybe we'll do a little bit better next time as always, I also want to take a quick second to remind all of you who do love the show, or just some of those people that we've had on the show, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It really helps other people discover the show. Platforms we are currently on include our uh, our sponsor, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Pocket Cast, my personal favorite, Radio Public, and a whole bunch more. If you happen to be an Apple listener or a Podchaser user and you like the show, it mean a lot to us if you could rate and review the podcast, but again, only if you like the show. Those five stars go a long, long way, and you can save the hate takes for Twitter, where again, you can find me at Mitch Gaines. That's games with a Y because I'm a little bit gay. G A Y N S. I'm joined on the show today by I have a long tradition of screwing up people's names here, so we'll see how I do. Melanie Diarangio? Diarangio? Oh. <laughs> Melanie Dorigo. Dorigo. Okay. I, I, Dorigo. I, I just went full bore Italian and I needed to scale that back to like 30% Italian. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I liked the conviction with which you tried. I mean, that was impressive. I, I will tell you, it's a, a long-standing tradition on this show that I just, I go for it with everybody's names and I'm wrong 99% of the time. Uh, <laughs> and I, I am proud that I do this as often to white people as I do to brown people because it makes me feel a lot better about it. Uh, but yeah, uh, apparently I'm really bad at this. But regardless, Melanie is a uh, progressive candidate for New York's third district, which I believe uh, it could be mistaken here as well, is uh, most of Long, you know, Upper Long Island, some of uh, Eastern Queens, and a couple places in between that um, my New York geography is not good enough to point out. Uh, unlike some of our other guests, she is actually primarying uh, an incumbent Trump-loving Republican. Uh, we've talked to a lot of people kind of primarying incumbent corporate Democrats, so it's going to be nice to get a little change on that today, uh, right here oh, in New York um- Mitch, actually, that's a common misconception. Uh, While my opponent uh, certainly works with Trump a lot and works with the GOP and caucuses with the GOP, he's actually a corporate Democrat, believe it or not. (laughs) My my apologies. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, If you you look at how he votes, it's a very common misconception, and you're not alone there. So so no worries. Yeah, my – okay, sorry. I just had quickly Googled uh, another name I'm going to definitely – mess up here tom Susie, Susie, swazi swazi uh, tom yeah. swazi here uh before uh before the interview and i was like okay well everything that comes up with him is gop or trump related uh so i right, guess i right. guess he's a democrat <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, he runs under the democratic moniker i mean we can debate whether or not he abides by democratic or is you know certainly guided by democratic principles i don't think so and that's why i'm running fair enough so i apologize for butchering this entire intro uh <laughs> 
Her goals include stopping corporate corruption, halting the runaway train that is today's GOP, finally delivering health care and clean energy for all people. Uh, and so with all of my many mistakes, welcome to the show, Melanie. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate you having me. I'm, I'm happy you could be here. So we uh, we start off every episode with uh, the same two questions for everybody. The first is, uh, you, you mentioned adhering to democratic principles. Here in 2020, we try to be as uh, super uh, cognizant of consent as we can be. So we have a thing we do here called the conversational safe word. And the way this works mm -hmm. is very similar to a sexual safe word. We have a safe word. If the conversation goes in any weird places, any direction that people feel uncomfortable, they say that safe word. We change course very quickly everybody goes on and has a better time much like a sexual safe word if you have to use that word like seven times within an hour it's probably best for everybody if we just go in our own separate directions and come back and try this <laughs> another time <laughs> so with that okay. said what is your conversational safe word oh boy um what is my con mm, um let's go with um oh gosh uh uh civil let's go with civil civil, word civil. yes Okay, I uh, I hope we don't talk about civil rights at any point in the future. Uh, <laughs> oh, I mean that's a point. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, oh gosh. All right, let's go with bicycle. Bicycle, bicycle, uh, bicycle works. Yeah. I, it's Ooh. funny, you know, in the first two seasons of this, every single person safe word was something food related. And it must be something oh. about New York where you guys don't, because I've got like lightsaber, bicycle, wind chime, like all sorts of weird. Things. <laughs> uh. Well, it's you know, I didn't have the heads up that I needed a safe word, and so I'm like, I'm looking around my house, and I have a book in, I have a tons of books uh, in my uh, dining area, and I just looked at a book, and Civil War was the, you know the word I saw and I popped into my head but I didn't have one ready so. Civil War may be more imminent than we want it we want it to be Carly so it was like, actually yes. well digital Civil War it was Peter Dow's book so I was just staring at it nice. mm -hmm. Uh, the, the other question we usually kick off with here is we, we like to kind of start from the beginning and ask people, you know, a, a, a lot of us, especially, you know, people I tend to interview on this podcast have uh, had a modicum of privilege, maybe been able to travel a little bit, have some, you know, friends from college or what may have you from other places. Mm -hmm. And so we have a little bit of an idea of kind of what, you know, a, a adulthood might be in a different place because we've been there as an adult, but, you know, mm -hmm. we, it, it's kind of hard to wrap you around, you know, what growing up somewhere else might be like. So where are you from and sort of what was growing up there like for you? Yeah, I'm from Long Island. I'm a native there. Um, you know, I think you you were correct with my district. Uh, you know, New York's third district is part of uh, northeastern Queens, uh, northern Nassau County, and a significant chunk of northern Suffolk County. So, a lot of the district is in Long Island, but we are part of New York City as well. Uh, I grew up in Suffolk County on the South Shore. I spent my adulthood, young adulthood, in Queens, and now I'm raising my family in Nassau County. Uh, you know, my childhood growing up was was not your typical childhood. Uh, I didn't grow up with my parents. Um, my grandparents raised my sisters and I, and it was a tough household. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of love in the house, and, uh, you know, my grandparents really struggled. I'm sure the last thing they wanted was to have to raise, um, you know, three, three additional children after raising all of their children. Um, you know, my grandfather was a foreman um, at a construction site. He was a union man. Uh, my grandmother, you know, she she worked nights at a makeup factory. So, you know, these were not folks that were making a lot of money. Um, you know, so money was often very scarce in our house. You know, we were certainly the house where, um, you know, I remember sitting with my grandmother and she would be looking at, you know, the weekly circular for the supermarkets and planning out the food budget for the week. And, you know, there were weeks where we didn't always make it. And, uh, you know, there were days where we didn't have dinner, we didn't have hot meals. Um, so, 
you know, a lot of this experience has really shaped um, my views today and, and how I look at, um, you know, the social safety net, because I was that kid, you know, we grew up on public assistance. I had free lunch as a child. Um, and, you know, that experience, when you grow up in a house like that, or it's sort of a tough environment, you know, you, you develop a, a tough exterior, you can take on a lot, but it's hard as a kid, you know, I, I'm so thankful uh, for the teachers that I had, you know, I'm a public school kid, and um, so I, uh, I apologize for the technical uh, disruption there, I'm not quite sure what happened, but we lost you in the middle, uh, and you were mentioning, uh, so a, a few different things I guess I want to circle back on, uh, kind of being raised by your grandparents and all that. Uh, one of the things, I, I was just speaking with somebody about this the other day, uh, who's around our age, also raised by their grandparents, and they point out to me, it's like, you know, their, their grandparents are kind of raised on these Depression-era values, right? Like you mentioned, like, being able to stretch a little bit of money or being able to get by on public assistance. It's like something we forget a lot of times about, like, you know, our grandparents' generation is like, those are literally the survivors of the Great Depression, you know what I mean? Like, those those are the people right. who rinse out Ziploc bags and, like, reuse aluminum foil and, like, can, can figure out how to make any of yeah. them else. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, yes. they look at us yes. like, what, what is wrong with you spoiled little brat? Like, you have free school lunch. Like, what, do you, what are you upset about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Uh, so right. Absolutely. You mentioned kind of finding, you know, that hope and that resiliency kind of in school and in teachers. Uh, who is mm-hmm. it that kind of, uh, you know, sought you out or kind of was able to, you know, see in you that like something was a little off at home? You weren't kind of getting that love and attention you were hoping for at home? Or is that something you kind of sought out on your own? No, it, I, I don't think that it was obvious um, to to my teachers really at all, in fact, um, because I was sort of like this model student at school. Um, you know, I, I paid attention. I always went above and beyond. I, 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 you know, I always tried to impress my teachers. And I guess that was because, um, you know, it was such a loving and nurturing environment within school. And I liked the way it felt, I suppose, you know. Um, so I, I think on the outside, very few people knew that I was really struggling at home and, and how hard it was for me at home. Um, I just, I just did, you know, I knew for me as a child, I didn't think that the way I was growing up was normal and I certainly didn't like it. Um, you know, as I said, there wasn't a lot of love in my home. So, um, you know, I, my teachers told me like, look, if you can be anything you want to be, you just have to work hard. And so that's, you know, that was the only lifeline I had. And so that's what I did. You know, I worked really hard. Um, and I was able to go to college. I don't know if that picked up on, um, if we, if I lost you there on that one or not, but I was the first, you know, the first in my family to graduate school. And, you know, I, I really, um, credit my teachers with that. Every single one of them who invested their time and their kindness in me, um, who pushed me to succeed, you know, who pushed me to be better, um, who recognized, you know, certain abilities that I had and where I, you know, had shortcomings. They worked with me to, to, um, ensure that I was, you know, doing all right. And, um, you know, I'm quite proud of that. You know, um, that's a big deal, uh, for a kid to be the first one in your family to graduate from college. And, you know, I did it with a lot of loans and grants and scholarships, um, you know, financial aid, but I did it. And, um, you know, certainly I, I, I really credit my teachers with where I am today because without them in my life, I certainly wouldn't be running for Congress. <laughs> I, uh, I, I want to go back a little bit and just, if you don't mind me asking, yeah. what led to you being raised by your grandparents? Cause like you said, it, it doesn't exactly sound like this was a scenario like, you know, your grandparents took you in when we're like, you know, the, the loving, nurturing grandparents who saved you from some other horrible situation. It sounds like something, you know, close to the opposite. So what kind of, what led to that? Yeah, well, my father left when we were young. Hmm. 
and then, um, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, I guess, when you're a child to understand these things. But, um, you know, I was, I guess I was five. I probably had just turned five, four or five. Um, and uh, my mother, it was like, it was a summer day and it was really warm, I remember. Um, it was about nine o'clock in the morning. She told my sisters, and not, well, my older sister, my younger sister was about, she was a baby at the time, um, that she was going to go get us ice cream. And we thought that that was so exciting, you know, because who gets ice cream at, um, you know, nine o'clock in the morning or, you know, maybe it was 10 o'clock. I don't remember, I don't remember the exact time, but we were pumped, you know, we yeah. were pumped. Like, that's so exciting. And, um, you know, she left and she never came back. So, you know, my sister and I, um, spent the whole day, like, you know, waiting for her to come back. And then, you know, when it started to become evening, we were really hungry. And uh, my aunt had made us memorize her phone number. My older sister was, um, you know, a year and a half older than me. So she, I remembered the first three numbers and she remembered the first four, the last four <laughs> numbers. And so thank God there were only <laughs> seven digits back then, right? <laughs> thank God. Thank God. And so, you know, I remember that day, like vividly, you know, my, 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 as I said, my youngest sister was a baby and my older sister and I were like trying to make her a bottle, you know, based mm. on like what we had remembered, like with the scoop of the formula and how much water. And, but we were nervous that, you know, she was not going to be able to eat because she was crying and we didn't know what to do. Um, and so, you know, we, we called my aunt and she came and got us. And then from there we ended up living with, um, we ended up living with my uh, grandparents. So it was, you know, there's, in families, you know, not every family has, like, this beautiful picket fence story. I think we know that most families don't. Um, but, you know, as I got older, I realized that addiction was in play, and there was, you know, a little bit of a nervous breakdown. And uh, so my parents haven't been in my life um, really at all since since then. So, uh, uh, first off, I, I apologize for, you know, just kind of, like, asking that off the cuff. Obviously, that I, that was a, a, a much more harrowing story than I expected. But also, I, I should note, like, an inspirational one, at least for me. Like, I, you know, one of the things I, you know, I, I also am a, a child of addiction and had, you know, seen in, in interesting uh, scenarios of childhood, if you will. Uh, but mm -hmm. one of the things about that is, that, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of people will tell you in that scenario, like, you can be anything you want to be, just work hard. Uh, but one of the things I right. find really hard about that is, like, well, yeah, I can work really fucking hard, but I have no role models. Like, I, I don't see anyone like me doing this. Right. You know what I mean, I, I don't see anyone openly, like, discussing this and being like, hey, th like, this is where I come from. Like, this is how I got to Congress, right? It's like, you know, I, right. I'm, I'm a right. child of addicts raised by, like, some crazed grandparents of the Depression era who, like, <laughs> might have killed me if I didn't get out of there in time. You know what I mean? And it's just like, that's like, you know, not a story you hear every day, but I also, like you said, is not, like, an uncommon story, especially in today's America. I think, you know, that, that's, you know, 30, 40% of our generation was raised with a story similar to that. So I, I really right, appreciate Right, we just you. don't talk about them, yeah. Right, well, it, and this is the thing, right? It's like, you look at the rest of your story we're about to get into, it's like, oh, I graduated close to the top of my class, I went off to college, I you know, you know, did all these great things professionally, now I'm running for Congress, it's like, why the hell would I talk about that? <laughs> you know what I mean? But I do think it's right. an important part of the story, because there's so many people who are like, how am I ever going to get there if this is where I'm at? You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think it's, it's important to mention because I think this is really the crux of, 
of a lot of the debates we have on the social safety net today. You know, folks that grow up in these, um, you know, homes where there aren't, there's not a lot of money coming in, um, you know, it's not the kids' fault, and oftentimes it's not the parents' fault either. These are people that are working, they're trying, they're just not getting paid a living wage, right? right. It's not that they're trying to say, give me assistance. They're trying. They, they would love a job. They would love the opportunity to work at a job that would pay them more money. Uh, but then, you know, like to your point, uh, when people tell you just work hard, you could succeed, work hard, you could succeed. I mean, like that was the only lifeline I had. But I had no other choice. So I had to, t- I had to believe that. That was my <laughs> mantra. You know, I internalized it. But I think for children who grow up, um, you know, in families where there's not a lot of money, like you're at such a disadvantage, right? So even if you do make it to this level where you somehow are lucky enough to overcome your circumstances, you're still much further behind because once you get there with everybody else, you know, they've had tutors. They've had the ability to go, um, you know, and maybe have, you know, soccer and extracurricular activities or chess class or music class or even SAT prep classes. I didn't get to take any of that, you know. So um, I, I, I remember look at one today. of like, the defining moments of like my college experience was, you know, I, I sold drugs throughout college. I sold weed pretty much all throughout college, to, like, you know, help pay my bills and everything because I lived off campus because I couldn't afford to pay for room and board. Uh, and I'll never mm-hmm. forget, I was like at some dorm room selling some kids some weed. Uh, and he was like, oh, you know, having this party where it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. You know what I mean? It's, you know, college life. Uh, and I'm like, yeah. yeah, man, I can't go. Like, I got to go to work because I had to go from selling drugs to my, like, day job at oh, Dunkin' Donuts to, like, make enough money to pay tuition to come to class. And I was just like, we right. live in different worlds, fam. <laughs> like, right. Like, we, you just, like, right. don't, you don't see what I'm seeing. <laughs> Right, right. And the difference of even like having to go to college and have to put yourself through college. Like I worked usually at least three jobs to put myself through college. And I did. I got a lot of financial aid because I, you know, I didn't have my parents. So I was technically a ward of the court. And I guess that's a, you know, um, the state, you know, gave me a fair amount of financial aid for it. But I still had to pay for my books. I still had to pay for my food. You know, I had to pay for all these other things. Um, so I was working three jobs. And when you're when you're in college and you're you're trying to compete and, and you know, compete for the best grades, mm. uh, you're at a disadvantage. Right. Because you don't have parents filling your bank account. You don't have um, you know, you have to go to work as opposed to study or write your paper or read, you know, your assignments. Um, so like you're, you're always it felt like to me like I was always trying to play catch up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like that's. You, you sink into that uh, kind of like the cycle of that very early, right? Like you're, you're playing catch up from the time you're you know, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth right. grade. You know, I remember graduating elementary school and I, you know, I was one of the best students in my class and a couple of the other best students in my class graduated elementary school and went off to like private middle schools and high schools. And like, mm-hmm. you know, we, I remember my brother got approached by one of them for like a scholarship. He's a couple of years older than me. And I remember we looked at it with the, like my parents looked at it with the scholarship and we we're just like, yeah, no, like that's way too expensive. You still and couldn't then, afford it. Right. right. But then like a couple years later, like, you know, my three best friends from elementary school are all going to these same exact schools. And it's just like, cool. Like we got the same grades. We performed the same way. But like, right. I can't, like, I can't do that. <laughs> you know right. I mean? uh, and I think that's, that's a great point. I, I don't want to get too far away from, you know, the backstory here, hmm. but like, that is why it's so important to fund public schools. It's like, we need to push away from charter schools. We need to ban the expansion of charter schools. We need to focus on strengthening the public school system and particularly for schools that, um, you know, may have lower socioeconomic, um, you know, that, that are in that particular um having those particular issues. It's so, so important because, you know, this whole, 
this whole idea that, well, they didn't work hard enough. Well, no, they just didn't have the resources to get to that same opportunity because we've all seen this happen. You know, whether it's that elite middle school or that elite high school that feeds to that elite college, but even if you get to an elite college, because I got into a really great school, but while I was there, I couldn't afford to take unpaid internships like all of my other friends did. So when we had graduated, they had all of this work experience and I had experience working in retail essentially, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're, it's, it's very difficult. And I think um, it really underscores that, that, you know, wealth inequality and that great divide. And, you know, if we do want, if you're going to lead with that argument that they should work hard, these people should work harder, then like we have to be able to recognize you know, all the privilege that's built into the system that would, you know, disenfranchise, you know, many people or, or you know, certainly become very large barriers for a lot of people, um, you know, to, to work hard and, and, and get that good job. I, I remember somebody told me, I forget when it was, but it was pretty early in life. But, you know, I'd, I'd heard the work hard mantra like yourself, tried to internalize as much as I could. Uh, and it really mm-hmm. like shook me to my core. They said, Okay, like you can work as hard as you want to, but work hard at what jobs? Like what what job do you know about? Right. What job do you have access right. to? And it's like, well, right. you can work really hard, like you said, at retail, right? You know what I mean? Like me and my brother have both worked at a Target in our lives. Target, generally speaking, as far as like low level, entry level work, is a damn good job. They pay decently. Yeah. Like you know, you know, relatively speaking, there are some benefits and everything. Like if you're gonna go work a shitty retail job, it's not the worst of the bunch. And so it's like, yeah, I went there. I worked hard. I had a quote unquote good job. I made some money and it did nothing for me. You know what I mean? That didn't right. build my resume, well, that it. didn't build my network and my connections. That didn't enable right. me to like do something else where I can make passive income. It just paid me a slightly below living wage for a short period of time. Right. And, and and the other side of that is that the folks that do have the connections uh, and do have the means, right, what what happens with them? They get an internship from someone's friend's father's law firm or finance firm or advertise, whatever well, it is. Yeah, at and then corporate all- at Target. That's the bitch. It's like we went to the same school, we graduated the same class, and I'm managing the store and you're managing the company. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think like we have to be really honest about what that looks like and we need to call it out because that's that's where that that really, I think, increases this this great divide. And it doesn't happen. Um, you know, it, it doesn't just happen when you're an adult. You're that happens like the family that you're born into. You know, you are you're working from the minute you enter this earth. That divide starts to grow. Mm. Well, let me, I, I, I know we uh, swayed a little far, but I know a lot of what we're talking about <laughs> here is kind of based around the idea of kind of educational tracking, right? And you mentioned education mm-hmm. was sort of your, your lifeline out. Uh, you cl- you're clearly a hard worker, clearly a very resilient person. Um, one of the things I always kind of wonder about people, especially in like that age range, you know, that, you know, preteen through like adolescence years, like who are, you know, clearly not your parents or your grandparents. So who like your f- friends and your like support system around you, like other than your teachers, like, do you have people, you know, do you have like a study group at school that you're super close to? Do you have like a best friend in the neighborhood who like the two of you are getting out of this together? Is it like your siblings? Like, how is that kind of uh, circumstance? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, of course I had wonderful friends um, growing up, you know, we had, you say, of course, um, a lot of people don't in those circumstances. Man. Well, okay. That's true. I guess. <laughs> Um, but if I remember, I told you, like, I think, um, you know, when people, and, and not that many people know my story. In fact, I think this might be one of the first places I've even told this whole complete story, um, which is saying, which is saying something since we're, you know, just a few weeks out from my primary. But uh, many folks didn't know, you know, I think because I presented as a student who 
you know, I was class president. I was a cheerleader. I was the lacrosse goalie. I was the star in the school play. It presented like I was this very privileged person. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of folks thought that I had this just like amazing upbringing. And, and some some friends of mine, when they found out, were really surprised and they would make that comment. They said, I thought you grew up with like a white picket fence because that's just how I look to other people, you know. So um, I, I wasn't really forthcoming about um you know, my internal struggles. I just really was focused on the future and I was really focused on doing what I could so that I could, uh, you know, support myself and, and, um, you know, live a different type of life. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, the, the overachiever who's covering for things at home is, uh, certainly, certainly an archetype <laughs> of both my reality and pretty much all the media I consume. So, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned, obviously you got into a couple of really competitive schools. Where did you end up going to college? I went to Barnard, Barnard, okay, in Manhattan. And... So Barnard is um, the women's school of Columbia University. Got you, okay. But it's its own like separate admissions um, process. So, but yeah, so that's where it, it's um it's right across the street from Columbia. And so, what was sort of uh, you know it sounds like you had uh you had some decisions to make obviously coming out of high school. What was sort of like your decision making process on like a I guess choosing to go to college? It, it seemed like that was definitely the out, obviously, but also kind of like, yeah. where to go. Well, remember, um, I didn't really have a lot of guidance, you know, Mm. so from what, like my guidance counselor was, was very helpful. My aunt was very helpful, um, who I ended up living with later in life, later in high school. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I was in college and, and she was, she was always in my life like she would come and visit us and whatnot. And she was also, I think a shining star. So I did have her, um, you know, to, to sort of balance out and have a little bit of normalcy in my life. So the aunt who made us <laughs> memorize her phone number, you know, um, and, and, you know, she didn't know a lot, you know, she, with, she didn't, all of a sudden she was taking care of me and my younger sister. And, um, you know, she sort of became a mom, <laughs> you know, even though she's our aunt and, uh, she was meeting with my guidance counselor and we were trying to figure it out. We had no idea how we would pay. She told me many years later, she would cry every night, which I feel terrible about because she knew how hard I worked. Hmm. And she said, you know, she would say, like, I have to get this kid to college. I have to get this kid to college. So um, we figured it out. You know, she did a lot of research, and my guidance counselor was very helpful. And um, what the only thing that I really knew was that Barnard was the best school that I got into. So that was <laughs> the school I went to because I thought, well, okay, you know, this is, this is the way. I mean, that's what you're taught, right? Work hard, get into the best school you can, and then doors will open up. Um, you know, that doesn't always happen. And, you know, when I was in college, that's when, uh, I think I was a sophomore in college when 9-11 happened. And then of course, you know, we were in a recession and it was harder to get jobs, et cetera. So, you know, um, it, it doesn't always work out that way, but, but I, you can only make a decision based on the information that you have at that certain mm-hmm. point. And so that's what we knew. And, uh, that's where I went. I, uh, I'm, I'm always curious to ask people that question mostly because, like I said, we talked to, you know, mostly fairly privileged people, right? Like just about everybody we've had on the, on the show went to, to some form of college or at least trade school or something like that afterwards. I'm always mm-hmm. curious, sort of like, was money the grinding principle? Was it staying close to home? Was it, like you said, like best school you got into? Like for, you know, I, I dreamed of going to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill my entire life. I've got, I got into oh. every school I applied to. I applied in UNC Chapel Hill and I got waitlisted and I was so like scared. Like I, you know, like you said, not a lot of guidance, didn't really know what waitlist 
list it like would entail is like well if i wait on the wait list like will i lose my spot at these other schools like let me just go and you right know, I, I, you know, I ended up choosing to go to community college and do two years there and then transfer just to like save money and stay close to home and all that and i always look back on yeah. that like would i have made a different decision and i'm, I'm curious kind of for the decisions others made I, I suppose it's a little easier when the the best school you get into is 20 minutes up the road right <laughs> well it was a little more than that but um you know it, it's a fantastic school and mm. i did get a lot of financial aid and you know i obviously had loans and whatnot as well but um i did get a, a significant package um you know to, to go to school there so um i feel like again, if anyone gives I, you a loan that you could reasonably pay off in your life and like says hey you can go to columbia like deal <laughs> <We're going laughs> Uh, yeah, Barnard, yes. I, I feel like I, I should always make the, the important distinction there. Uh, so, well, I always do. I, it's actually a point of contention, I, uh, at least when I was going to school there, that, um, you know, folks would say, oh, I go to Columbia. They're like, no, you go to Barnard. I was always very proud to go to Barnard. I think um, it's a phenomenal school, and it, uh, I, I, you may know this about me if you've, if you've read anything on my website, but I, I am certainly a huge proponent of women and women's causes, so I feel fortunate to have had that foundation. In, uh, in my quest to be a better feminist, that's literally how I discovered you. So, uh, oh, <laughs> I, amazing. I, I joke with people all the time that I, I spent the first like 24 years of life being pretty much every iteration of a shitty man one can be, uh, and then like I no, discovered I feminism while I was in college, and I was like, oh wait, like you can undo all of this and I already know all the tricks. So I can definitely undo this for other people. Like, this won't be hard at all. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, at this point I'm like always on the quest for like better, essentially feminist voices and sources in my life. And so that's how I was introduced to you in the first place. So, uh, thank you for continuing oh, the trend. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I, I will. I will take a bit of a turn here near the the end of this first segment, and I'll ask what is my favorite question of every interview, and it has nothing to do with most of anything else at all, except for generally how you, you how you came of age. Uh, what was your first vice, and who was the person who introduced you to it? So, like for you know, there could be a bad habit. That could be smoking cigarettes. That could be eating too much junk food. That could be running away. Yeah, you know, everybody has kind of different vices. I'm always curious, sort of like what was the vice you oh. first got introduced to, especially kind of like as a younger person. Yeah, I don't know if this is as juicy, but I would definitely say cursing. Okay, um, no, I think that's was very, very young. <laughs> <laughs> young. Um, you know, my, as I said, you know, my, look, I, you know, it, I didn't, as I said, I didn't have a good childhood growing up. But, you know, with time, I was able to see that, um, you know, I think my grandparents probably uh, tried their best. <laughs> you know, I think they were probably just super overwhelmed uh, and, and uh, frazzled all the time. Uh, because they were struggling so much. And uh, so there were a lot of curse words <laughs> that came out. So for as long as I can remember, that was just sort of, you know, commonplace. It wasn't uh, a situation where, oh, we can't curse in front of the kids. No, the F-bomb flew. And, um, you know, that <laughs> was something I knew very, very early on. I feel like there are two types of grandparents. There are grandparents that will, like, never swear, and if they ever did, like, your jaw would drop. And there are other grandparents <laughs> who, like, if they're not swearing, you think something's wrong with them and you want to go check their Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. Well, we'll, we will wrap up our first segment here. I want to come back on the second half and talk a little bit more about the campaign and sort of your entree into politics. Uh, it sounded like you had okay. a, a pretty interesting life kind of getting up until uh, adulthood and then finding out what you wanted to be. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about here that here in the second half, and we'll be right back after this. Great. Thank you.
I'm one of those people. All right, we are back and we're going to jump into our second half. I'm one of those people. The people that we are talking about in this season are New York City progressives running for Congress. Uh, and so I guess I want to start off our second half here and kind of ask, uh, what, what in your eyes is a progressive? Because that is a, a term that's kind of getting thrown around by a lot of different people these days. And uh, what it exactly means to what people is sort of a different thing. So what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think there's been a lot of um, positivity and negative and negativity assigned to that word. Uh, progress, progressive to me means progress, right? It means that I'm I'm standing up and I'm pushing for progress and I'm doing it on behalf of the people. Uh, to me, progress means getting corporate money out of politics, getting that special interest money away from our uh, from our governing body. I think uh, that is the greatest impediment to progress. And we see this on both sides of the aisle. You know, we see Republicans taking a tremendous amount of corporate money. We see it on the Democratic side. My opponent takes millions of dollars in corporate money, and he doesn't feel bad about it at all. Um, and then in turn, what we see is those same legislators legislate for corporations. We've, we've been seeing this for years and years, and now we're seeing it um, really during this pandemic. You know, my district was one of the hardest hit districts in the country. Um, and we see lawmakers giving away huge corporate bailouts to corporations, to medium-sized companies. Many folks don't know, but the Main Street Lending Program that was supposed to be geared toward middle, um, like mid-sized companies, there are loopholes in there that allow companies that make yachts to access it, to make companies that that uh, charter private jets can <laughs> access that. It's ridiculous. Well, it's just a mom and pop private know, jet, though, you know? It's, yeah, right? I mean, come on. I mean, this, this is, let's be very clear, these bailouts, you know, this money was supposed to be given to industries to float the economy, to, to make sure people were okay so we can get through this pandemic. We're not even, I don't believe we're, we, I don't even think we're halfway through the pandemic. All the health experts say that, you know, the death rates are going to get up to 3,000 a day starting in June. Uh, health experts predict that this will go on through the fall. Like, well, I don't think we're halfway there yet. And all all Congress has done is is give these tremendous corporate bailouts uh, and, and and do nothing for the people, and I think that that is wrong. Um, and so, to, being a progressive to me means I'm fighting for progress that will improve the lives of all people. So, one of the questions I, I've been asking pretty much everyone in this particular season. Uh, Pretty much everyone I've interviewed is a, a very progressive candidate. Uh, almost mm -hmm. all of them are challenging Democrats. I, I think you were one of the two I, I thought were challenging Republicans, even <laughs> you were a challenging Democrat. Uh, why run as a Democrat and not form a third party? And I, I say that more rhetorically because I, you know, I, I've pondered this a lot as a third party voter, and you know, I, I know some of the reasons why. But a lot of people at home are always wondering, like, why don't all these progressive, kind of idealistic Democrats like get together and just form another party? It seems like. It we are, you know, 20 to 40% of the Democratic Party. We clearly hold mm -hmm. enough sway that we can make a, a decision in most elections, even if we can't get our own candidates elected. Uh, why not start a separate party? Well, first and foremost, it's because I think we want to get, we need to change now, right? Mm -hmm. we, we have certain issues where we can't wait. You know, we, we need to address our climate crisis. It's the existential crisis of our generation. We do not have time. We are running out of time. If we want to plan it for our children, if we want to plan it for our grandchildren, that needs to be addressed right now. We don't have, you know, 10, 20 years to build the infrastructure for a party to then take it over and make those laws. It will be too late. Um, you know, we see people dying because they can't access health care. They can't afford health care. 
that's a problem, in my opinion, that cannot wait. You know, um, and, and so while I'm not, you know, that opposed to the idea, um, what, I, what I'd rather spend my energy doing is returning the Democratic Party back to its base, back to the values that it was built upon. The Democratic Party used to be about helping people. Somehow, uh, you know, I think with, with Citizens United, uh, they've really strayed from this mission. Um, you know, we are the big tent party, and, you know, it's really concerning that, you know, particularly where I live, so, like, my um, my county Democratic chairperson is also the state chairperson of the Democratic Party. He's also a business partner of my opponent, uh, and, and he, you know, it seems to be a, promo- a proponent of corporate money and politics. So, like, when you have this much corruption and you see these people who want to push out progressives, but yet they're very willing to let people in the party who do not support a woman's right to choose, I think that should all give us a lot of pause. What I think the major issue is, is that so many people, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the last segment, so many people are struggling. When you are struggling to raise your kids, pay your bills, put a chicken on the table, uh, just it, it's a struggle to get through the day. You don't have time to think about politics. You don't have time to read through the bills. You don't have time to look and figure out who your representative is. And is even though that representative might be a Democrat, is that representative voting with Democrats? Is that representative fighting for people? They don't have time. And so what I have found overwhelmingly is that most people are very surprised to learn that my opponent, who is, you know, obviously very corporate friendly Democrat, uh, is very, very surprised to see what what he's actually up to and who who he's fighting for. You know, he sits on a caucus, the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a caucus comprised of conservative Democrats and Republicans. They do nothing to help the Democratic Party. They only help the Republican Party. Uh, So when you look at you think people think that, well, oh, I have a Democrat, so things are okay. But they don't know what's really happening because they're too busy in the struggle. They can't, you know, they can't keep their head above water. I think we need more education, and I think it starts with the progressive movement. You know, while people might look at us and say, oh, well, they're radical. You know what? There's nothing radical about wanting everyone to access health care. There's nothing radical about saving our planet. There's nothing radical about telling a woman she has autonomy over her body or saying, hey, every person, you are equal to everyone else. There's nothing radical about that. In fact, it's quite radical to think the opposite, right? So I think this huge movement, and it's growing, and we've seen this, right? We've seen it growing. Right now, there's amazing progressive candidates running all over the country. It's up to us to continue to build this movement, to continue to educate voters so that we need to, like, we can take our party back so uh, listen there's there's a lot of facets to taking our party back right like that's everything like you said from from ending corporate corruption within our politics to making Mm -hmm. fair elections to solving the climate crisis to common sense gun safety to you know women's bodily autonomy which i cannot fucking believe we're still fighting about you know what i mean Uh like just as an aside like not even for women just in general for humans right like the idea that anyone else has some sort of authority over what happens in and on my body like it, men understand men understand this that that is just like a, an existential right right like if another man touches okay. your body you uh, have your like the right to assail them you in some states you have the right to kill them you know what i mean like we we all understand this as like it, it i don't know that, that whole concept boggles my mind but i guess what i'm right. saying here is where do you then decide where to start, right? Where it's like, you are, you know, if elected, you are but one of 700 or so, you know, members of Congress. 
How do you decide, like, this is going to be my lane? Like, hey, listen, like, I'm going to take on corporate corruption and fight for women's bodily autonomy. And, like, if I'm being honest, I'm not a climate scientist. So I'll vote on whatever the bills that the climate people tell me to vote on. But, like, I'm not going to be drafting, like, the innovative climate legislation. You know what I mean? Like, where do you you kind of draw those lines? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the the first step is to just start, right? The first step is to run and just start. Um, I think that, you know, certainly it's recognizing where your strengths lie and where they don't uh, and listening to the experts, right? I think it's never been more important to have officials serve with integrity and morality um, because we can certainly, to your your point, like I'm not a, I'm a scientist, I have a master's of science, but I'm not a climate scientist, but I believe facts, I believe scientists and, 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 this is so mind-blowingly infuriating, but like when you go to D.C. and you sit on, on these committee hearings, which I've done many times, you see the Republican Party questioning the climate science, questioning whether or not climate science is real, climate change is real. I mean, it's, 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 it's mind-blowing. And I think for the Democrats to sit there and like normalize that behavior is a huge mistake. Uh, and I think it's because they've gotten very comfortable being status quo. So it's about building those coalitions and raising their voice and being like, that's absolutely absurd and calling it out when you see it. Uh, I think it's about using, you know, your talents and your skill set where you can be, you know, certainly be the leader. Like you talked about Brianna Wu, right? Like she would have been fantastic, um, you know, in, in her lane. Uh, you know, I, I have a, a history of exercise. My master's is in exercise physiology. So it's all about health. So healthcare is very important to me. But our healthcare system is really a sick care system, mm. primarily. Um, you know, we're not working with people to to promote health in any way. We're we're preventing sickness or, you know, trying to help people get better primarily after they're sick. I think that there's like a whole world, there's a whole body of work that our country needs to do to inform um, and educate on actually like uh, implementing healthy practices. Right. And that's and that that's really integrated in a lot of areas. Um, you know, from the social safety net to the climate, right? Because we know that how we eat, right, it impacts our bodies. And so uh, agriculture is going to be a big piece of it. So, so it, 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 it has um, a lot of roots into a lot of different areas. Um, one of the things that I'm particularly encouraged by, as I mentioned earlier, there's all these amazing progressive candidates. One thing that I think is really amazing is that many of us have connected. Many of us are on... Um, you know, calls. Some of us have, you know, cross endorsements and are the endorsement groups are running um, widespread calls for us to be in contact. Many of us are on Slack, on Twitter, on text. You know, we're already building coalitions. We're already presenting ideas and we're getting each other to sign on to it because even though, you know, I may not be a climate science expert, uh, if I have a partner that is, you better believe I'm going to be supporting and pushing for a Green New Deal and fighting for it and fighting to get the right people in the room. You know what I'm saying? So I think, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty remarkable what's happening right now. Uh, but we have to, you know, we just have to start and we have to elect folks that have the integrity and the courage and the conviction and the morality to do the right thing, even if it's not the politically expedient thing, because we're not seeing a lot of that right now. I honestly, I think that's probably one of the more encouraging things I see. You know, I, I, I mentioned frequently on this podcast, like I'm not a Democrat, I'm an independent, but I, I'm an independent whose general philosophy is like going as far forward, not, you know, left or right uh, that we yeah. can get. Right. And it's part of, part of the thing I always find myself kind of, you know, smack myself in the head about, you know, quote unquote, you know, progressives is always like we splinter ourselves. It's like some are in the party, some are out of the party. Some want to form a new party. Mm-hmm. Some are, you know, w- want to rebel against, you know, electoral politics altogether. Uh, and, 
<laughs> and right. so like, uh, you never really know kind of where they fit in. And it seems like in 2020, at least in this cycle, there's been a lot more kind of coalition building amongst the progressives where it's like, hey, 40 yeah. of us are going to run and if 15 of us get in, here's how we're going to split it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and yeah. So, you know, yeah. You mentioned, you know, you guys are on the same college. You guys are getting endorsed by the same people. You, you guys are on the same podcast in this instance. It's like, <laughs> uh, it's like I, you know, I've interviewed by the, by the end of this season, I'll have interviewed, uh, I think 16 different candidates for Congress this year. It's like, oh, I don't know maybe. how many of them will end up getting elected, but it's like, now there's a connection point for, you know, anyone who looked into one of those candidates now has a connection mm-hmm. point to 15 other progressives, three of which five right. of which, you know, hopefully 15 of which, uh, <laughs> will be in office, you know, come November or come January. Right. Right, right. I, yeah, no, I think, I think, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say one of the things we were talking about off air is kind of this notion of anyone can run, right? And I think that's one of the things that's really kind of being driven home by this class of folks running for Congress is that, like you said, you, you, you have people who are health scientists, you have other people who are client scientists, you have other people who are inventors, you have other people who are former cops, you have people who were once like gang intervention, like, a, you know, specialist. You have social workers. You have you know financial experts. It, it, it's much more diverse representation of who America is. Uh, what mm-hmm. is frightening to me though is that the only place I see that diversity is on like the 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 left quarter of the supposedly left party, right? Like it's only the progressive wing of the Democratic Party I see that sort of diversity in. I don't see that in the rest mm-hmm. of our own party. I certainly don't see that across the aisle. And I'm not only talking, obviously, you know, uh, you know, ideal. Uh, identity representation, but more, you know, ideological representation, academic background representation, and just kind of life experience diversity. Uh, and I'm a little frightened that that isn't, it, that's trending so far in the opposite direction for the other, you know, 60, 70% of Congress. Right. But I think if there is, if you can take comfort in one area, it's that the last election cycle really changed things and it shook things up. Uh, and, and I mentioned off air, but, you know, the knockdown the house documentary that featured Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Paula Jean Swearingen, Amy Valella, and Cori Bush. You know, one of the things that AOC says in it is that, you know, while Joe Crowley, like, you know, he was in office for 30 years and, and no one ever challenged him, but like literally anybody could, right? mm. that's how our government is set up. Like literally anybody could run. Uh, of course, we, we like to believe that the people who are going to run are going to be running for the right reasons. <laughs> but I think, you know, that is how we have, that's how we build a more equitable society, right? We need folks to represent all elements. You know, when we have these old white men in office, they're legislating for old white men. They're legislating for their lived experience. They may be lawyers, and while that is, you know, certainly a skill set, it's just as easy to make sure you have a lawyer on your staff and make sure your bills are right, you know, et cetera. But we need folks that know what it's like to go to bed hungry. We need folks that know what it's like to worry about paying their bills. We need folks to to have had the experience and that anxiety of how they're going to manage paying their bills and paying their college loans this month, right? Because those experiences make for better legislation. It's only when people experience things that they really feel passionate and driven to make a change. Uh, And that's been sorely missing in our government. And I'm completely encouraged by the amount of people that are running because as I said, the last election, it changed things. It shook a lot of things up. And, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez showed people that it was possible. Because not only did she step up and run, she won. Right. You um, know, and I think that's all that we need to see. Because now we have, I don't know what the, like, how many progressives ran last cycle compared to this cycle, but it's hmm. a lot more. 
Well, and they're and they're a lot more visible, and like you said before, they're a lot more connected, right? Like they're building these networks, they're they're building these coalitions, and they're building sort of like they're exchanging the skills of politics that kind of are built to exclude us, right? It's like, well, you need to know how to file right. this paperwork, you need to know when these deadlines are, you need to get a brand exactly. manager, you need a, 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 a PR director, you need all these different things. Like I don't even know where to fucking start with any of that, right? One of my well, one of my favorite episodes I did was with Joshua Collins running out in Washington, and it's like uh-huh. he's a twenty six year old truck driver. You're like you, yeah. you think that guy has like a, a like you know in his spare time is just like you know reading books on like personal branding to make sure that he appeals to the right kind of centrist Democrat to pull votes in the right I county. Mean, like no, but he like seems to intuitively get it though. Right? Oh, for sure. Like thank fucking God. You know what I mean? And like listen, I yeah, could disagree yeah. with Josh on every single policy he ever proposes. I would still fucking support him just for the sake of being like we need more truck drivers in Congress. You want to primary right? Josh Collins and get my vote? Primary with another truck driver. But I'm good. I, I just want more truck drivers in Congress. Give me a socialist right. one. I'm right. cool. <laughs> right. Uh, so, right. I don't know. It's, well, a, I mean, it's an awesome time in America for that. I'll say that. It's like, it, I, well, and, 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 yeah, totally. And I think, you know, like you said earlier, like, yeah, it's unlikely that every single one of the progressives running will win. And we've seen some, unfortunately, lose their primaries. But that doesn't mean they go away. Right. You know, they've made their mark on this on this movement. They've likely, I, I, I'm going to say almost definitely, inspired others in their community to step up and run. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of them run again. But if they don't run again, they will find people in their communities to step up and run. And now you have more people educated about what's happening in certain districts that will step up and challenge the status quo, that will challenge the establishment, that will, ta- that will call them out when they're lying and trying to gaslight constituents, which we see all the time. So this movement is not going away. This movement is only growing. You know, in fact, I, I kind of joke, but it's like not really a joke. I say like my opponent better hope that he loses because I'm going to be the biggest thorn in his side, you know? <laughs> so um, this movement only grows. This movement is not going away. I, I think that was one of the things I, I find most inspirational about this moment of this movement is like, I, I've seen this many times before. I've never seen it with this level of organization and this level of compassion for one another. Uh, it's always mm-hmm. been sort of a, a, a movement that was splintered sometimes by outside sources, uh, often splintered amongst themselves about what was the right direction forward. And it seems like mm-hmm. though there's still some dissent, obviously, uh, what direction mm-hmm. we're moving is finally kind of settled on and we're all, we're all in this together. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess tracking back a bit to, you know, what, what happens if you do win, uh, what is sort of, you know, obviously you only got two years there with, with your you know first session. Uh, what is sort mm-hmm. of the signature thing? I'm, you know, I'm looking at your issues page across your website and it's like, you know, there's a lot of big issues on there. What is the thing you're kind yeah. of, you know, hoping to prioritize and hoping to make, you know, your signature issue? There's a, you know, a couple of things I saw yeah. on there, you know, like support for Medicare for all or green new deal where it's like, you know, those, those bills are you know, pretty much crafted that, you know, we, I'm, I'm thankful for your support on them, but I don't know how many tweaks we'll be, we'll be needing on them as they, they get further through the lines. What is something you're kind of hoping to introduce that not a lot of other people are focused on right now? Yeah, so uh, one of the things I already introduced is the paid by act, politician accountability, information disclosures benefiting you. So the acronym is paid by. Uh, and essentially what it is is um, it's a policy that would would offer more transparency into uh, corporate money in politics. And, and the idea of it is, as much as many of us want to overturn Citizens United, that's going to be a longer-term play, right? That's going to require a constitutional amendment, so we're not going to see an immediate change. 
So I started to think outside the box, right? How do we continue to educate the public about the dangers of corporate and special uh, interest money and politics, which, in my opinion, has really taken over our government? Mm. Um, And so this would require politicians and candidates to disclose on any campaign ad or any vote that they take how much money they take from uh, any competing industry. So think of it somewhat like a pharmaceutical ad, right? When we see a drug ad on TV, when it lists all the side effects, I want uh, a politician, let's say we have the Medicare for all vote. If you oppose it, you have to disclose that you, like my opponent would have to disclose that he takes money from the medical supplier industry, that he, like his super PAC, and this is where it gets a little bit wonky, you can find this, it's harder, but he has insurance money in there, healthcare industry money in there. They have to disclose that. Uh, so it'd be somewhat like a race car, right? But um, I think if more people knew just how pervasive and insidious corporate money is in politics, they would start paying attention a little bit more. And I think this is a way to really wake people up. Um, you know, and I think it moves us away from the, well, that person's a Democrat, so it's fine. Why are you challenging this person? Well, this is why. These are all the reasons. Hmm. No, and, I, so, I, as somebody who obviously you know, has his eye on the media probably more than most people do, uh, as somebody who's a, mm-hmm. a member of it, one of the things I'm shocked by is the amount of people who still say things like, you know, advertising doesn't affect me. Like th- those things don't work on me. And it's like, I, I, are you crazy? You know what I mean? Like all of right. those have an effect. And so I, I think okay. one of the best things we can do, much like you've seen with cigarettes in, in recent memory, where it's like you get these graphic warning labels on them. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, people still smoke. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, I, I just quit smoking again, yeah. you know, three days ago. Um, but you, know, <laughs> you buy a pack of cigarettes. And, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and, you, and you read all the things on you. are like, Oh, okay. Well, if I'm going to do this, at least I know it's bad for me. I know this is unethical. It's moral it's it's bad for my body it's unhealthy and it's like why don't we do that with pretty much everything else that's similarly bad for you uh and the first right. of that obviously being political corruption because it's one of the worst things for you um right and i think as i said earlier i think it's the single biggest impediment to progress and so i think mm-hmm. it's why we don't have medicare for all it's why we don't have the green new deal and mm-hmm. and while you know the green new deal schools. right exactly all of it, really, uh, is why we don't have universal background checks. I mean, it, it, it runs the gamut. But, you, you know, like, certainly we have a very strong Medicare for All policy. We still need voices to support and advocate for it and build support. Uh, a Green New Deal is a resolution. It's not legislation right now. It's being worked on. It's being fleshed out. But there's a lot of work to be done there. Uh, and, and, again, that is going to require a lot of work right now. Uh, and also Barbara Lee has, you know, introduced the Each Woman Act that would repeal the Hyde Amendment. Uh, and I've been, you know, my opponent has long supported the Hyde Amendment. And for, for any listeners who may not know what the Hyde Amendment is, it's an amendment that blocks funding for poor women to access abortion, uh, which is just astounding that we have an amendment like this, um, you know, and we and have had it for, for many, many years. I think it was like 1967 it was, um, it was passed. So while abortion is legal, why do we have an amendment that says poor women can't access it? Because poor women can't access the federal funding. It's ridiculous. Uh, and I'm just so over it. I'm, I'm so beyond over it. I'm so beyond the attacks on Roe v. Wade. It's why I'm really excited to elect more women who I know will advocate, uh, at least, you know, progressive women and de- hopefully Democratic women who will advocate for repealing Hyde. Uh, so there, there are some certainly quick wins. But, you know, while we'll focus on signature pieces, I think, um, you know, getting as many progressive 
folks in offices possible to lend support and bolster and strengthen other initiatives that we really, really need in this country uh, is going to be very important moving forward, particularly as we rebuild, uh, hopefully after, um, you know, Trump's administration comes to an end. Well, hopefully the, the administrations that follow it will uh, be ones who actually listen to progressive voices, not just pay us lip service. Uh, speaking of, of people Correct. who voted for the Hyde Amendment. Uh, <laughs> Correct. Correct. One of the uh, the questions I usually like to ask to follow that up is kind of the inverse, which is like, you know, you got two years there, but, and, you know, we, we've talked a lot about your story, but, you know, talking here for close to an hour, but, you know, yeah. say you do get elected, right? Like, that's a huge fucking moment in your life. I have to imagine that that's, it's got to be one of the coolest things you've ever done at that point, right? What is sort of the tiniest thing you want to do in government? Like, you know, first day in your office, you want to, like, you know, carve your name into this desk over here, or, like, hang a photo of this person who, you know, told you you'd never make it, or, like, rename that, you know, one street sign or something. Like, is there something just, like, little and stupid like that? Like, you can't I, wait to do um... I don't know. No, I don't. I I don't have something little. I have something that is ancillary. That's not. Um, but I think it's actually quite big. But it's it's not a law. I think you know we talk about electing women um, to Congress a lot, but you know for 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 many women, uh, one of the barriers is, is that women are the chief and primary caretakers, and so Congress isn't friendly to mothers. And I have a friend who um, lives on Long Island who I think would make a fantastic representative, and she wants to run, but she has small kids, and uh, she's a teacher, and so her, her schedule has always been flexible enough where she's been able to, you know, have dinner with her children and put her children to bed. Uh, and so one of the things after I win that I am looking forward to doing is figuring out how we create a friendly environment for moms. Uh, I have small children, you know, and... Um, I, I'm not going to just not see them. And so I, I'm thinking about, you know, how do we work it out where, you know, I take a child with me each week. Like there needs to be um, more support because without it, I think that, um, you know, it's going to prevent moms from running. And I think we really need more moms in office. So that is something that I'm, that I have thought about, but in terms of something really tiny, um, I don't know. I just, you know, I, I hope to have a very friendly office where uh, we encourage people and and let people know that this can happen and that they can do this. And, uh, you know, to stop listening to all the noise and those folks that question them because they're not a lawyer or they don't have, you know, the typical background. Like, I want to I want to make it a very accessible place for folks. Well, that checks out because you're certainly not a small thinker in any sense, and uh, that's certainly not a small idea. But I, I do think about that a lot. Just when we we think about you know who what is, what is the age of your ideal politician, right? And like no matter you know who you are, essentially like we all we all want politicians that are somewhere between their mid thirties and you know before their early sixties. Uh, and it's like, well, all the women in that age bracket have you know not all, but like a, a great deal of them have children. <laughs> like a, a lot of them are right. the primary caregiver of a family, even if they don't have children. You know. What I mean? because right. that's the responsibility we put on them in society so it's like it's inherently Absolutely. exclusionary in cutting them out of government uh by like not having that be a welcoming space for them to be both a mother and a you know contributing representative or congress member or senator or you know any of the other billion jobs within government right right exactly and like right now only five percent of congress is comprised of moms that's insane because yeah. I, I, I guarantee you 95% of Congress is comprised by people who would say the best person in their life is their mom. 
You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that, like we all say, like, that is a, a, like a routine joke that every person in America says all the time. The best person I know is the person who raised me. It's like, really? So why don't we put any of those motherfuckers in the decision-making positions for the country? <laughs> that would check out, right. huh? <laughs> right, right. And, like, you know, I, I, this is something that I've experienced a lot running for office. You know, there's a, I think it's hard, and we know this, like, we've seen this across the board. It's harder for women, um, you know, to be taken seriously. You know, we get questioned more. You know, if a young man, run, you know, graduates and runs for office, that people say, wow, look at that ambition. But if a woman does it, it's, well, what's her qualifications? Right. Why is she running? Why, you know, and this is something that I think every woman gets asked if they don't have the traditional uh, background, which is become a lawyer, serve on your town council, maybe be, uh, you know, in your state legislature. And, you know, mm. um, this, this is something that we hear all the time. And I just think it's so absurd because when I look at my community and really every any community I've ever lived in, and I think this is true for most people, it is the women who are the builders of community, whether it's the PTA who's building and fostering this amazing school experience for children, or it's the women who are um, you know, forming the community garden because they want to make sure that everyone has access to fruit and vegetables, or you know, they're they're putting on these charity events. That's what makes the community, right? It's mm-hmm. it's the women who are always looking out and fostering and bettering communities. So it seems only logical that they would do a fantastic job um, in our federal government. Can I? I'm I'm curious about this. I haven't asked anyone else this question, but I'd, I'd be interested to know. Before you ran, did anyone ever approach you about running? I mean, I had friends that would say, when are you going to run? When are you going to run? You should run. You should run. My husband, actually, probably the, the biggest champion has been my husband. Um, I never thought that I would run for Congress. Um, and I, I think that's true probably of a lot of progressives <laughs> that are running. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I told you my story earlier. I spent a lot of my life trying to just, like, overcome where I came from and, you know, I have kids of my own now and I try to give them the best life that I can. Uh, and it's hard, you know, being a parent and you're working a parent, you're trying to, you know, make sure the kids have what they need, get them to soccer practice and make sure dinner's on the table and you're still trying to get ahead with work. Um, you know, I was politically active, but nothing like I've been the last several years. You know, for me, uh, after Trump was elected, I was, I was, you know, embarrassingly shocked. You know, I, I didn't see I didn't think that that was a possibility at all. Uh, and so, you know, the scientist in me kind of took stock and realized, well, you know, I bet if I, who is a politically active person who cares deeply about a lot of causes, had no idea this was a possibility, I would bet there's a lot of other people out there just like me. And so I started to, um, I figured if I could show up more and be more helpful, uh, seek out, you know, or step up in, in organizations that I had previously been involved in and seek out additional ones and try to engage and bring more people into the process that we could counteract Trump's agenda. That, that was my plan. And that's what I did. Um, you know, and I, I did a lot of, I've done a lot of activism work. Uh, I helped organize the women's March in Atlanta in 2018 and, uh, you know, stepped up in organizations like Moms in Action, Planned Parenthood, a lot of immigrant rights organizations. Uh, but even at that time, I did not think that, um, you know, I would run. I was very focused on, okay, well, people aren't paying attention. We just need to voice our opinions more and tell our representatives what they want, you know, what we want, and, and then they'll do what we want, you know. And it's so naive of me. But part of the reason I wanted to ask is twofold is, like, we, you mentioned uh, – 
we accuse women, I guess, of, of having sort of like this hubris or like this sort of like, I don't know, like somehow like their ambition is bad, but men's ambition is great. Uh, right. You, you just rattle off part of your resume there. It's like you've been doing activism in a bunch of different capacities, organizing literally across okay. the country for years. And it's like no okay. one in the Democratic Party ever came to you and was just like, hey, maybe like, you know, this program training you to like, you know, run for something might be a good idea. Or like, have you thought about running where it's like. I'm literally just a podcast host who would like a modicum of, you know, some political experience, you know, doing a, a bit of volunteering and organizing here and there. And I've been approached by three separate people in the Democratic Party about running for three separate offices. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, that right yeah. there, like, describes, like, the differential. And, and I remember, I forget who it was, but I interviewed somebody in my first season, and they had said to me, similar to you, like, well, I never saw myself running. And it's like, we tell women all the time, like, uh, you know, running isn't the position they're in, right? Like, you, you can organize, you can be a great activist, you can right. be the voice for all these things. Right. You can literally make the community happen. But when it comes to being right. in charge of it, when it comes to getting credit for it, like, no, 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 fuck that, you can't do that. Yeah. And she had said to me, right. she's like, I didn't run until, uh, similarly, like you said about your husband, my boyfriend pointed out, it's like, the hubris of men is sometimes, like, required to remind women, where it's like, hey, like, my dipshit boyfriend over here was like, well, why don't you just run for something? And then this very qualified woman was like, huh, yeah, maybe. That's a good idea, actually. I, I probably could do a really good job of this. <laughs> like, that's how the world changes. I'm like, oh, I really wish we'd just, like, told women that when they were seven instead of when they were 40. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and to be fair, like, my husband, when he, he, had, he had been telling me to run for quite a long time, and I was like, no way, no way. Fair. No I don't want to accuse that, your husband you know? of being a dipshit either. Um, so <laughs> no, and he's, he's not. But uh, for me, it was, it was the Kavanaugh hearings where I was like, we need to get people to run and change this, you know? Um, and that, I think that was that experience. I was down there protesting and um, it was that experience that really, uh, I'm a survivor. So for me, uh, it was very emotional. It was very personal. And I, I went down, you know, I went down with Planned Parenthood to protest once. And then I, the day of the final vote, I went down with my family. And, um, you know, my girls had just turned eight and four and my son was in a stroller. And I was holding my little girl's hand, standing at the foot of the Supreme Court and thinking to myself, how could we have let this happen? You know, and I felt like um, certainly a lot of anger welling up in me. But um, I looked around and I saw, you know, thousands of people who were supporting each other, who were lifting each other up, who uh, were in this for the long haul. And like that was the day something in me shifted. And I, I just knew in that moment that. Thing, that, that this, this moment in time was going to require so much more of me. And at the time, I had been doing a lot. I, I was managing a campaign. I was doing a lot of activism work. Uh, but, like, I, I just knew, like, we all, it was going to require more of all of us. Um, and, you know, I didn't know I was going to run for Congress that exact day, but that's when things changed for me. And, and I think that's when I started to really realize that, huh, our representatives aren't representing us. You know, they're representing their corporate donors, they're representing, uh, you know, their wealthy donors, but they're certainly not representing us. And I think it's absolutely inexcusable for any Democrat to support the Hyde Amendment. It's inexcusable for any Democrat to have stayed silent during those Kavanaugh hearings. Like, that is one of, like, the core tenets, right, of the Democratic Party, a woman's right to choose. Mm. And if you're not on board with that, like, I'm sorry, like, we're a big tent, but we're not that big. <laughs> Yeah, man, I, I, it's one of the things I truly do not understand about, you know, where the Democratic Party is in 2020 is like, we're still the big tent party, but where we expand the tent just doesn't make sense to me. It's like, 
Well, yeah, right. You have Mayor Pete Buttigieg out there, and I, I love Mayor Pete. I volunteer for Mayor Pete. But they're courting future former Republicans actively. And then on the flip side of that, it's like, well, like, okay, so you can be against a woman's right to choose. You could be formerly a Trump supporter, and that's all fine and good. But if you're over here arguing for Medicare for all, you are too radical, and you need to be quiet, and you need to unite with the rest of us. And I'm just like, which right. values are we supposedly about here? You know what I mean? Like, are, are we about right. racial justice? Or are we about women's right to choose? Are we about public education? Or are we about, like, selling these things out to corporate interest and, like, hoping they get better because, like, the corporations with the D next to their name bought them instead of the ones with the R's? Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's scary things for me. Uh, I yeah, I, I mean... and th- No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, that's why, like, I'm encouraged, too, by these groups like Matriarch, you know, who have, who have sprung up to help women get elected. You know, we've been lucky enough to be endorsed by them. We're, like, one of 10 candidates in the country. Um, you know, na- uh, the National Organization for Women endorsed us. We're one of a handful of challengers across the country that have received their endorsement. Moms in Office just endorsed us as well. And I think that's what's so exciting about this movement. You know, it is just expanding and expanding. And there are already folks that are saying, yeah, you're right. Thank you for running. You can do this and providing that support, which I think is really meaningful. And, like, you know, to your point, we need to tell more women Speak up, get loud, use your voice, rock the damn boat, cut the line, you know, don't swim in your lane because that's not what this moment requires. This Mm -hmm. moment requires all of us like standing with each other and pushing for the change that I think we so desperately need. I, I literally could not have said that better myself. Uh, it's, it's one of the things I, I feel like a, a lot of our politics, especially uh, here in the Democratic Party, has started to center around like civility and decency and all these things like, well, if we just be demure and quiet and polite enough, then maybe good things will come. And it's like, no, there's real tangible value to getting loud, to being disruptive. And I'm not saying that's how you should approach things at all times. You know what I mean? Like, there, mm-hmm. there's a time and a place for every action. Don't get me wrong. But like, there is, in fact, a time and a place for loud, abrasive like tactics there there are times where you should get out of your own lane and go get in somebody else's face and say no fuck this shit you are wrong like i deserve to have control over my own body and i'm sick of waiting 40 fucking years for you to tell me that's okay it's okay (laughs) you know what i mean it's like we, we need to be able to like empower people you know and beyond women for that matter like we need to empower men to like say that shit and not like feel like they're going to be cast right. out of masculinity for that you know what i mean it's right like, right and and you know i i agree and i also think so that there's a way to get loud and do all those things without being rude or crude right agree. uh and i'm I, and i told you like my vice from a really early age was cursing right so i don't i don't view that the same way as other folks do but um this idea that you know protest which is like as american as apple pie is is not civil is just so antithetical to uh, you know to, to the fabric of our country you know uh, i think that it's it's we need to encourage more people to step up and, and to be loud and to, to really exercise, you know, their rights as Americans. And uh, right now we have representatives who aren't representing us. And so there's no reason they should stay in office. I, uh, I, I guess I'll wind down this second half on, on this. Somebody had left me with this statement recently. It's been resonating in my ears for a while. And they said, America is currently uh, in a time of crisis. And the crisis is between whether or not we are in America of our history or in America of our ideals. Uh, and that is very much kind of the, the, the 
juxtaposition we find ourselves in now. It's like, will we go back to what has traditionally been our American history? Will it be, you know, more misogyny, more racism, more corporate, you know, socialism, more, more, you know, cronyism that, uh, you know, kills off working class people for the sake of a few people at the top? Will it be more of that? Or will it be the ideals that we always profess to about freedom, about liberty, about justice, uh-huh. about equality? Uh, and uh-huh. I've, I've said for a long time, you know, I'm, I'm one of the most pro-America people I know, but the America that I'm, you know, proud of, the America that I am for is an America of our ideals, an America that we're uh-huh. trying to aspire to be, not one that we've ever been before. Uh, and so this uh-huh. idea of going back to normal, this idea of going back to great again, this idea of going back to an America of the old simply will not do. Like, it, it simply uh-huh. will not meet this moment, and we will literally die if that is the case. Uh, and so uh-huh. I'm hopeful that progressives like yourself will prevent such a thing from happening. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what the progressive, you know, movement is really all about. It's about not accepting the status quo, not accepting the things that work only for some people, but not for most of us. You know, it's about pushing to create a country that benefits everybody. It's about pushing to create a country where all people can thrive. Uh, you know, it's, it's about fulfilling that promise of America, right? Uh, that's, that's what, it, at least for me, that's what this, this, this is all about. Um, you know, I'm running because, like I said, I have three children. Like, I need to be able to tell them at the end of the day that I did everything I could for them, you know. Um, and, and I feel that way, really, for my whole community. Um, right now, we are getting gassed, not just by Donald Trump, but by people in our own party. You know, like, I, I'm sure you've caught this, but, like, there's so many folks uh, that, that think, well, you know, health care is a human right. <laughs> really? I'm glad you agree. And I hope you'll be signing on for the Medicare for All bill. But no, that's not what they're saying. They want to subsidize. They want they want to um, support a public option that would leave millions of people without health care. But Melanie, they right? want affordable access to health care. Don't, don't you because understand that's the same thing? Don't, don't yeah, you know, we can define affordable. <laughs> this is the thing that drives me nuts, right? It's like, think of that sentence, and it's like, healthcare is a human right. We want to provide affordable and safe access. It's like, what other right do you need access to purchase it at a rate that you probably can't afford that somebody else tells you is affordable because a market has determined that that is affordable without your input? Tell me how that's that a right. Tells me that, <laughs> that tells me that they're losing the marketing battle because I think that it really resonates with people when they hear healthcare is a human right. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. However you feel on the spectrum, that message is resonating. So they're trying to call out that message. Uh, you know, I think right now during this pandemic, you know, a lot of us are pushing for essentially a Medicare for all, at least through the pandemic. Of course, we would want it to, to continue. Like, I'm not shy about saying that. I've been a staunch advocate for Medicare for all my whole campaign. But, um, you know, the idea, and I'm sure you know this, Mitch, that, that uh, the insurance lobbyists have provided Nancy Pelosi with a plan to subsidize COBRA payments instead of providing health care to everybody is so unconscionable. Oh it is so irresponsible. Responsible. First of all, that doesn't cover everybody, right? And, you know, in my particular district, and I'm sure my opponent will be happy to sign on to that, but in my district, we have a lot of contract workers. Mm. You know, we have a lot of people that can't afford their insurance because they're barely making enough to feed their families. Mm. This would exclude so many people. And we're seeing this pandemic flare up in other states. Uh, so this is going to continue to be a problem. Like, it's it's absolutely irresponsible governing. And, uh, you know, I think that's why it's, it's so important you just take it back to why, what does progressive mean? 
progressive means progress. Like if you want the status quo where we have a burning planet, where 20 year olds are launching GoFundMes to pay for their health care, where women have to uh, sacrifice their bodies and go into like back rooms if they choose to have an abortion, where trans women are being persecuted. Is that the world we want? That's not the world I want. That's why I'm running for Congress to fight for everybody. Well, we are going to leave it there and come back and do random people with Melanie. But uh, if that doesn't get you uh, hyped up to go participate in the political process, then I don't know what the fuck will. Uh, so I hope if you're listening at home and you live in New York, anywhere in New York, but specifically in New York 3rd District, uh, that gets you excited to go vote in a few weeks. Uh, and we'll be right back after this with random people. And we're going to play Random People with Melanie D'Arigo. I hope I got that right this time. Uh, the way this works is we have a list of 100 people here. Melanie's going to give me three numbers. I'm going to give her three people. And she's going to tell me three things about those three people. Uh, so without much further ado, what are your three numbers, Melanie? Let's go with 16, 47, and 98. 47, 98. All right. We'll start at the bottom because that's easier to scroll down to. All right, we have 98 here. All right, this will be a good one to start on. All right, 30 seconds on the clock. Tell me the first three things that pop into your head about police officers. Community, um, safety, and problematic. <laughs> <laughs> That's a New York answer if I ever heard it. Uh, reading right off the side of the card there until we got to the last one. All right. <laughs> uh, we'll yeah, well... Yeah, I mean, look, I think, um, you know, obviously there's been problems across the country and they need to be addressed. But I also think, you know, there are um, there, there, there are many wonderful police officers that, that help communities. And we just need to replicate that and make sure the police officers are uh, really treating everyone fairly and, rep- and, and really being equipped with the knowledge to do so um, and making sure that it's replicated in communities where we're seeing a lot of issues. I that's a I have so much faith in you as a politician. Uh, <laughs> we will uh, we will move on up to forty seven, which I I swear to God this was not planted. This just is number forty seven. New Yorkers, <laughs> the best. Um, I will dispute that as a I, masshole, but all right. <laughs> I mean, I think New Yorkers are driven, kind, and just the best. I I love New Yorkers. They're so straight up and to the point and direct. And I think a lot of us get a bad rap for being uh, rude or unfriendly, but I find New Yorkers to be some of the friendliest people in the world. Um, you know, we're very direct and, and sometimes folks don't know how to take that, but we are uh, always willing to help. And, um, you know, we're, we're so strong and resilient and I'm very proud to be a New Yorker. 
All right. I, I, I think I would co-sign most of those things. I, I think that's the Northeast in general gets that bad rap of like, we're, we're all too direct. We're all too straight up. We're all kind of assholes. But like, I don't know. Those are my, those are my people. So I, I fuck with New Yorkers, man. Uh, I'm never moving there, but I fuck with y'all. Uh, and my, my last one is number 16 here. We have musicians. So tell me the first three things popping here about musicians. Talented, creative, and therapeutic. I, I think I've known a lot of musicians uh, throughout my life, and they're people that feel usually very deeply, and I think they, you know, share their gifts with the world, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's particularly now, it's such a welcome distraction. can bring so much happiness and uh, peace to folks. I would, I would definitely co-sign that. You know, I was, I was raised in a household with musicians. My, my father was a musician. So, uh, oh. it's, it's strange to me now. I actually don't listen to as much music as I used to. Cause I listen to so many podcasts. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I find myself listening to less and less music. Uh, but yeah, you, you mentioned that kind of therapeutic aspect of it. It's like, there are just certain, certain things in the catalog where it's just like, I throw it on at any moment and it's just like, Oh, like, I just had a great four minute cry that I did not anticipate. I'm glad nobody else was around for it. But like, I needed that. I did not know. Right. <laughs> Right. We do something in our house where we have, you know, I have three children, uh, you know, they're nine, five and three now. And so we do these family dance parties when like we just need to like get out our energy or when people are, you know, when my kids are feeling sad and we'll baby shark it around the house. <laughs> that is <laughs> you know, amazing. Like that. <laughs> I feel like the, the quarantine definitely calls for that too, right? There's going to be like yeah, a nightly dance sure. party at that point. Yeah, you need it. You need it. All right, so the way this typically works is I get, I get one follow-up question on each of these, so I'm going to have to choose carefully. I'm gonna, I, okay. I feel like we covered musicians there. I, I cheated a little bit. I got my first one out of the way. So I will jump to New Yorkers because you mentioned they're, they're straight up, they're driven, but they're also kind and they're you know, some of the, the lovingest, nicest people you know. What is, what is your yeah. best like New Yorker like, love story? Like what, your, your, your neighbors mm-hmm. helping you out or like some, so, just something super New York that you saw like summed up your love of the love of New York? Yeah. Oh my God. Such a hard question. Um, so many memories flooding in, you know, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, I was, a, I was a sophomore in college during nine 11 mm-hmm. and I was in Manhattan and, uh, I'll never forget that week. You know, my, one of my best friends, uh, that in school was the Dean of Columbia college's niece. And, uh, you know, they were, so she had Intel that, you know, most of us at school didn't have, and they were afraid that maybe, uh, Columbia would get, um, bombed because, uh, you know, those, the attack seemed so symbolic, right. It's the financial industry, um, you know, Washington DC. And because there was so much in New York, they thought maybe it would be like an attack on like, um, you know, the education system or like, you know, somehow related to the future of um, America. And so, you know, everyone was really scared. Um, there was no one on the streets. I, I suspect it's probably a lot, a lot like that today during the pandemic in, in Manhattan. Uh, but nobody was on the streets for about a week. And uh, when folks started going back out again for months, um, you know, September 11th, it, it was pretty warm, you know, and so restaurants had... Um, you know, we're able to have outdoor seating for, for a while. But really, like all through that first year, anytime a fire truck went down Broadway, which happened frequently, everyone in the restaurant would step, stand up and start clapping uh, for our firemen um, and our first responders or, you know, in, in many cases, uh, you know, for months this, this went on. Um, and that to me, 
you know, really sums up the spirit of New York, where people came together in unprecedented ways, where there were lines to give blood. The blood banks had to turn people away. They had so much blood. Um, so it's a way, you know, in times of crisis, in times of need, New Yorkers are tough and New Yorkers are strong and they come together and they help their community. Um, and so for me, that was probably the most impactful um you know, New York love story that I have. And, 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 you know, now during the pandemic, we're seeing, we're seeing this happen again. You know, my district, um, we have one of the top 10 undocumented populations in the country out of any congressional district. And a lot of our undocumented families are afraid to go to food banks because uh, they're afraid that ICE will pick them up. And so there are all these different folks who are collecting food and there's these sort of underground invisible hands groups that are providing food and delivering them to families. And we've been involved in that. Um, there's a group called Empowering Young Professionals who set up makeshift distribution centers and they have volunteers delivering to undocumented families. And so we've, as a campaign, actually set up, um, we, we built uh, a sort of coalitions with a lot of community-based groups and activist groups and put out collection bins at 10 different locations in my district. And within two days, five of them were filled out. So we have to make a drop tomorrow. But like this, I think, really speaks to the kindness of New Yorkers and how they come together. Um, and it's really, un you know, we, we hear New Yorkers always being selfish and rude and, you know, all these things. But I, I find it quite the opposite, that the majority of us are, you know, quite giving and, and willing to um, or very quick to help our community members. And I think that uh, really speaks to uh, the fabric of who New Yorkers are. I, I find that, generally speaking, in the Northeast, like, the, the distinction between, like, Northeast kindness and Southern kindness is about, like, mm -hmm. uh, do you focus on, like, uh, you know, yourself and what you want and making sure that you also don't, like, inconvenience or get in the way of other people? Or do you focus on, like, going out of your way to convenience people? You know what I mean? And then, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. New Yorkers are very much a group of people where it's like, I'm going to do me, I will stay out of your way, and that's what keeps this whole, you know, 7 million people in one place thing working, right? Like, we all get mm -hmm. off the subway the same way. If somebody doesn't, you punch that guy in the face, and we drag him off the subway, and we keep it moving. <laughs> that's New York. And, like, in the South, it's yeah. very much the opposite, where it's no. like, you know, let's all take our sweet time. Like, let's, you know, this person wants to go this way. Let's just help them, you know, understand this system. And it's like, no, we don't do that shit up here. We got too many people. Nobody's got enough time. Uh, but that's what makes it great. And the, the only thing I I've experienced that was comparable here in Boston, where I guess, you know, I'm in Minnesota right now, but here in Boston, where I usually am, uh, was the Boston mm -hmm. Marathon bombings. And so yeah. that, that was surreal to me. And, you know, I, I worked directly next door to Fenway Park at the time. Uh, and so you mentioned kind uh, of okay. that, that after effect of like, what will there be another bomb? Are there other bombs nearby? You know, I had a few friends in the police force who were nearby. And so getting, you know, got, you know, all this different information. Then uh, a friend of mine I went to college with ended up being shot by one of the, one of the marathon bombers, like during the manhunt. So it's kind of a crazy oh time, gosh. but then I will never forget that, you know, the day they captured him, my, my birthday was that same weekend we go out and it's like, you know, the, the streets are empty. It's desolate. There's, you know, maybe, you know, 40 people in any bar that you go by but then as soon as the news breaks it's just like this spattering of applause from this place and car horns from over there and lights flashing mm -hmm. in this apartment building and people pouring out of this dorm at a college you know two miles up the road and it was one of the more surreal things i'd ever experienced where we were just like 
we'd all very similar to now, I guess, kind of been cooped up in our in this lockdown, like waiting for the signal that everything was going to be all right, doing everything that we mm-hmm. could for one another, uh, and then getting out the other side of it and realizing that like that's how we got there was kind of like leaning on one another's kindness and empathy. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I, I, I think about that a lot in this moment, and uh, I think New York's pretty similar in that way, and has has plenty more examples to go through of that, uh, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, right. Yeah, and I think, you know, at the risk of sounding completely cliche, I think that, you know, the majority of people are inherently good. And I think, uh, you know, to your point earlier about advertising and marketing and commercials and how it affects people, you know, we see that with folks who maybe grew up on Fox News and they've only watched Fox News, they only hear one side, uh, of which mostly are comprised of lies. And so they can't even break through to understand that there might be another perspective, you know. Um, and, and I think it's, it's times like this, it's, it's moments of crisis that as we look at the silver lining, you know, we can see that there are opportunities for us to come together and have meaningful conversations about policy change uh, and how we better our communities together. And I think, um, you know, it's hard sometimes to think about that and focus on that because it can be so incredibly frustrating um, and angering. Uh, but I think that we do have that opportunity right now. So as much as we can, you know, we should reach out to folks to try to, um, you know, get them to see why it's important to have, you know, many of the policies that progressives are fighting for. One of the things that progressives are fighting for, it will take me to my last question here, which is uh, <laughs> okay. surrounding criminal justice reform and, and kind of police officer retraining and reform. Uh, Mm-hmm. The, the three things you said on police officers were community, safety, and problematic. And it's mm-hmm. police officers are definitely a, an important, uh, at least as communities are currently constituted, an important member of the community. Uh, some mm-hmm. people certainly think they, they bring them a great deal of safety. Other people think they threaten their safety. Uh, and I guess yep. that therein lies the problematic part. Uh, so I guess yep. what exactly are you hoping to do on sort of like, I, I guess this is a bad you know way to, to end this interview on such a loaded question, but what is sort of your stance <laughs> on uh, kind of like police reform and police retraining? Because I, I think a lot of people have these you know lofty platitudes when it comes to criminal justice reform. Like, oh, we're going to you know decriminalize marijuana and we're going to you know, you know get rid of mandatory minimums. And like, oh, you know, it, that's cool. And that, yeah, I'm here for all those things. To me, that's kind of the, the boilerplate of the progressive party. And I'm always curious, specifically people running for house seats, like, what do you want to do on a local, like a more local level? Like, how do you want to interface with your own district about like how to do policing itself better? Because that seems to be something we can attack in the more immediate term. Yeah. And I, I think that there are a lot of different components to this question, but um, you know, in my in New York, and I don't know if you're aware of this, there was just recently a big push for bail reform. Mm-hmm. I think um, part of like I'm, I'm a big educator, right? I think um, because I worked, you know, in this behavioral. Well, I, I worked as an allied health professional, so behavioral health is a big piece of that, and it's bringing people closer, and you do that through education uh, in order to create change. And um, I think that there are a lot of folks out there that don't realize that many folks, and you know, to our point earlier about folks with less means, if they can't afford bail, uh, if they're not even convicted, they're sitting in jail. 
Um, many times it, they're sitting there for months and months, and it's this vicious cycle where um, they'll, you know, they're so tortured in there. A lot of times these are young folks. Um, they take a plea, and then that's a mark on their record, and then they can't get jobs, and then it just becomes this vicious cycle. Uh, so we were, you know, our state legislature um, passed bail reform, and now they've rolled it back some because I don't know why they got rolled. But um, I think we need to have these more open conversations and not let these scary narratives take over, um, you know, which is criminals will be on the street uh, when, you know, they're, they're not criminals. They're, they're folks that were accused uh, that may have, may have committed a crime and may not have committed a crime. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, I can help advocate for and I have advocated for in my district. I also support uh, ending for profit prisons and being detention centers, which I liken to prisons. Uh, you know, when you talk about legalizing marijuana, I think it's a good idea. Uh, you know, as a parent, I think, uh, as we know, many children do try marijuana. I think it's a really good idea to have, um, have it regulated. But then we have to look at, well, how do we give back to a community that was essentially um, preyed upon for so many years? How do you give folks back their life? Uh, I don't know what the answer is to that, but I'm very committed to working with folks to figure that out. Um, and I think, you know, with police officers in general, it's a really tough, um, it's a tough subject to broach. Most folks don't want to have honest conversations and say, listen, uh, you know, while we know and have been taught to believe that police officers are pillars in the community and they, um, you know, they keep our community safe. And, and let's be honest, there are many communities where that does work. Um, there are also other communities where that is not working and people fear police and people feel afraid of police. And, you know, there are videos that we see Jesus nearly every day where, I mean, I saw a video um, just this week where um, police officers uh, threw a, um, a black young man to the ground because he was too close to people during the pandemic. We don't see this happening in white communities. And I think as white, like as a white person and white people in general, we need to be more um, vocal about this and we need to see how we can show up for our partners. You know, I don't think we should necessarily be leading on it because I think there are more important voices to lead on it, but we need to be there. We need to be next to them. We need to be behind them, supporting them, and we need to implement measures where police are adequately trained, right? And there's a lot of proposals right now, whether it's um, hiring from the communities, uh, ensuring there are more people of color at various stages of leadership, it's instituting, um, you know, uh, racial profiling and unbiased training uh, to help people understand what that looks like. Um, you know, I think for too long, uh, this hasn't been the case. And I think that, you know, like I have police officers here in the district who are wonderful and, you know, who, who have confided in me that they are free to come out and talk about everything that's wrong because they, they're afraid they'll get shunned or lose their job. And, and that's a problem. And I think, unfortunately, um, you know, the response has been to ignore this and maybe make a little criticism and ignore it. And, and that is not moving us forward. That's not progress, right? So the way that we get into it is to get into it and have these honest conversations and bring in, um, you know, not just have a conversation with government officials and police, but bring in communities that are impacted and give them a seat at the table and, and try to come up with solutions together on a community-wide um, front. Intentionally vague question and asking 
white politicians, what do you want to do about problematic cops in New York City is as close to a gotcha question that I'll probably ever ask on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I think you did that uh, spectacularly well. So uh, well done. <laughs> the, uh, the final question I usually ask people kind of to wrap up here is uh, a pretty basic one. Who, who are you mm-hmm. hoping hears this? Like, who are you hoping hears your story? Uh, you mentioned a few times, there's a couple of things in this podcast that uh, you hadn't spoken on anywhere else. So who are you hoping gets a chance to kind of hear this, get to know a little bit more about you and your run and your plans? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, obviously, I'd be remiss if I didn't say I hope people in my district hear this and hear my story uh, and three. make sure. That, yeah, New York three. That's right. Uh, right out of the third. And, you know, I, I need folks to understand what's really happening uh, and, and understand that, you know, not any Democrat will do, that we can do better and we must demand better. Uh, so I'd love for, you know, those folks to, to listen and, and uh, give us a shot and get their absentee ballot and vote. We're, we're pushing everyone to vote by absentee ballot and not go to the polls for safety. Um, I'd love it if other progressives or, you know, any other folks who are listening that if our story resonates, Support us. You know, go on um, our Facebook. We're Dorigo for Congress. Same on Instagram. We're um, at Dorigo Melanie on Twitter. Follow us, like us, share out our information. I know times are t- hard for everyone right now, but our costs are exploding, having to switch from a ground game of volunteers to, um, you know, digital and social games. So we do need to continue to raise money. Uh, even small donations go a long way. You know, if we get, you know, a thousand people to donate five dollars. That's that's a huge impact for aggressive campaign like mine. Um, and, and perhaps most importantly, uh, if there are any young women listening, uh, I hope that my words inspired you to step into your power and run for office or do that thing that you've always been told you can't do. Because I'm here to tell you that you can. Uh, and I so I always encourage young women to 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 be brave and be bold and use that voice. Uh, you know, particularly in my district, I've already I actually one is out of my district, one is in. I've identified young women that I want to cultivate and get them in. There's these two powerhouse uh, young ladies um, that I'd love to get them running for office. So reach out. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, you know, a lot of us progressive candidates are really accessible. So if you want to run for office, you know, I encourage you to reach out. You can reach out to me. I may not get back to you until after the primary. I want to have a little bit more time before the general. But reach out. Uh, keep being bold and um, don't give up. I think that was very eloquently put. That's something I will say to a lot of people out there, specifically young women we talk a lot about in this episode, people not really telling women that they're allowed to do that. It's like, I am stunned, not just by the progressives, but specifically by progressive women who, you know, if not them, then their teams will take the time uh, to share knowledge, to share information, to share how-tos, to, to you know, give me access to things. Just as, as a member of the media, as a freelancer, as somebody who's just interested in trying to get to know more about politics, uh, and it's almost mm-hmm. a, across the board been progressive of female candidates who always open their doors and is like this is how we do things like what do you want to know uh it's it's been astounding to me so you're somebody out there listening at home who's thinking like i would love to do this and i don't know how like give people like melanie a call and there are literally hundreds of them running across the country not just the ones we feature here on this show uh so reach out right people in new york obviously please do listen to this please do reach out please go sign ballot signatures please make sure you go get your absentee ballots in the mail uh is there a place they can go online to apply for an absentee ballot melanie so I, yeah, I actually, if you if you yeah, if you go to my website, which is Dorigo 2020, um, there's a vote um, a piece of the menu. But you could also go to Dorigo2020.com slash vote and all the information is there how to get your absentee ballot. Awesome. So head over to 
over to Dorigo2020, that's D-A-R-R-I-G-O-2020.com uh, slash vote, and you can get all your information about how to vote by mail. Uh, that way you don't have to leave your house and risk getting sick for the sake of progressive politics. Uh, it's probably something worth dying for, in my opinion, but I've known that everybody feels that way. Uh, for everybody else <laughs> listening in the show, whether you are a musician, a New Yorker, a police officer, another progressive, people in at New York 3rd, people outside of New York 3rd, I don't really care who you are because I know everybody listens to those people's podcasts. It is the very best podcast in the world. Please be sure to go check out Melanie Dorigo? Dorigo. You can find her at Dorigo Melanie on Twitter. You can find her at Dorigo2020.com. Uh, like we mentioned before, you can find all the information about needing to vote uh, by absentee ballot at Dorigo2020.com slash vote. So please make sure you do that. Uh, and until next time, I am Mitch Gaines. She is Melanie Dorigo, and we are all those people. Most people are wrong, most people are right. You don't have to want it so bad. You could just put it back. Don't have to be me. Thank you for checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people. Really hope you tune in for the rest of this season, including going back and checking out some of our episodes from Volume 1 of this season, focusing on political people, and in particular Democrats who are running for Congress. Got a few quick housekeeping notes here for you. If you listened to this episode and you really enjoyed it, please, please, please rate and review the show wherever it is that you listen. really helps other people find the show, and that's pretty essential to us being able to do a second season. Uh, if you happen to be an Apple or a Podchaser user, those places in particular really help drive our listenership. So if you could, definitely leave us a rating or a review there. If you really love the episode, or you just want to support the show in general, there are a number of ways that you can do just that now. You can head on over to anchor.com slash those people slash support to make a recurring monthly donation to help keep our little show going. You can also log on to mitchgains.com slash store where you can buy one of our creative people t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, or anything else that you happen to find in the store that catches your eye. And even if you hated the episode, you might want to take a look there because we have some pretty cool shit. Also, if you just want to buy me a drink or something next time I'm in your city, that's cool with me too. If you have feedback for the show, I'm also all ears. My Twitter DMs are always open, and you can also email me at mitchgaines at gmail.com. If you prefer speaking to writing, obviously I do, that's why I have a podcast, you can leave us a voice message at the link in the show notes here. Your feedback, your questions, and your opinions may be used in a future episode, just be a note of that. Special thanks to East Boston Public Library for allowing us to record several of these episodes there on location, including our interviews here with Anjan, Jackie, and a bunch more in this particular volume. 
Also want to give a thank you to Amy Bazoon Artea as well as the Justice Boys for our outro and our intro music respectively. Both of those songs are fittingly titled Those People, and we'll post them links in the show notes if you want to find out where to find them. Lastly, most specially, a thank you to our executive producer, Kayla Shetlin, without whom, as I always say, and I mean this quite literally each and every time, none of this would be possible. And also a final thank you to those people out there who've supported this project from its earliest days, including some of our previous guests like Brianna Wu and Ken Mejia Beal, and friends of the show, including Irvin Bailey, Crystal Roloff, Shelbo the God, and countless others that I'm missing. I'm Mitch Gaines, and I appreciate you, whoever you are out there, for listening to this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people. See you next week.